Our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 4 to 22. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead, this disturbed Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them, warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and your cell, you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone, go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much for that reading. Thanks for having me here at Erin Baptist again. It's a, it's a privilege to be here um, and just be part of a sermon like this, or be part of a service like this, I should say. In some senses, there's not much more I can add to what Ross and the team have already done in highlighting the issues of injustice. Um, Erina is one of the churches that I am incredibly proud of when I talk about what Baptists are doing in the world. Um, you may not know, but I'm sure many of you do, in fact. Last year um, and the year before, Erina campaigned on tax justice. That had a huge impact on the, at the G20, where the 
big group of the world's global financial leaders got together to talk about what they can do to have, make a difference to the way the world economy runs. Um, your campaigning was heard by not just our treasurer, Joe Hockey, at the time, but by some of the world's most significant financial leaders, the treasurers and finance ministers from across the nation. And for me, that's a story I love telling. So it's a real privilege to be here um, and to be talking about justice again. Um, we've heard a range of stories today. We've heard stories of exploitation and borderline slavery. We've heard stories of people in poverty completely unable to change their circumstance, people being impacted by climate change. And the thing for me that holds so much of that together is the way that power is used in the world. Um, it's been our theme for this year's Catalyst, power and poverty. Those two things are so dramatically linked together that it is astounding how the misuse and abuse of power seems to perpetuate some of the worst exploitation that we ever see. Some of you may know that Baptist World Aid has been doing a lot of research into the way fashion companies and electronics companies operate and the impacts that that has on the poor, how their labor rights management systems throughout their supply chain can protect or leave vulnerable their workers. We wanted to move that research that we've done and the public awareness that we've created through of that from just academics to going in to really understand some of the issues involved. So at the end of last year, myself and uh, one of the people from my team, Jasmine, went to India. And that's where Sonali's story came, comes from. It comes from our trip. But we heard multiple stories like that. If I can go to the next slide. So you may not be able to see very clearly here, but that girl in the blue dress, her name is Christina Jessica. Um, she was born in 1991, same age as my sister. And their two lives could not have been more different. So Christina Jessica, her father died when she was really young. So it was left to her and her mother to continue to exist and eke out an existence. Her mother went and found whatever work she could, but was just never able to make ends meet. Couldn't, couldn't keep food on the table, couldn't get running water in the house. They lived in that tiny tin shack, the same one that they're living in now. They constantly struggled. There was a labor broker in the village, a man that was known for finding people and getting paid to recruit them into the fabric, um, into the fabric mills around the region. And he knew that they were vulnerable. So he approached Christina Jessica and her mum and said, hey, I've got a job for Christina. It'll help you guys put food on the table. The conditions will be great. It's air-conditioned factories. She'll be well looked after. We'll look after her, you'll get to eat well, you'll get to live better, and your life can start, start moving forward. Christina Jessica's mother did not want to send her daughter off at the age of 12 to go work in a fabric mill. She wanted her daughter to stay in school, get an education, and then open up all the opportunities that, that could lead to. But that wasn't a choice for them. They needed food. They needed to be able to save in case there was an emergency. So 
So both of them reluctantly said, yeah, we'll take the job. And Christina went off to work in the fabric mills at 12 years old. What really gets me is that not only were they willing to exploit this 12-year-old girl by getting her a job in the fabric mills, they chose to lie to her and to break all the promises that they had made. Christina Jessica's factory was far from air-conditioned and safe. It was hot, it was sweltering, and normally they give you like a face, mark when, face mask when you work in fabric mills because of all the cotton fibers that constantly float about. There's no face masks. She was forced to work extended hours rather than eight hours a day. She was often forced to work 11 hours a day, and there was constant physical abuse and verbal abuse to push her to work harder. And instead of paying her what they promised, which was still less than the minimum wage, instead of paying her 100, 100 rupees, or about $2, they decided to pay her about 40 rupees, 80 cents. And when Christina Jessica asked her supervisor why wasn't she being paid what they told her she would be paid, he said, look, I can do something about that for you if you want. You just have to start sexually servicing me. It's ridiculous. So here's this young girl. She was Christian and she knew that that wasn't right and she just refused. But it meant for her that she had to live off 80 cents a day plus whatever her mother could earn. She was constantly subjected to sexual harassment and abuse in this factory. After five years of working at that fabric mill, she got a lung condition which is really not a big surprise because she was working in a context where the, the fibers had probably permeated into her lungs and she could no longer breathe properly. The way the mill owners responded was by simply getting rid of her, discarding her, they were done with her. And that was it. So when she was telling us her story, she said she didn't know how much could be done to change it. But the one thing she felt like she had the power to do, the one way she could use the little power she had was to tell her story and just hope that by doing so, it would have an impact, that people would hear it and they'd be motivated to ensure that girls like her don't have to be work in such awful conditions that they can get an education. That was the power she had and she was using it. I can go to the next slide. This is not an isolated occurrence. You heard similar themes come through in Sonali's story that was read out to us as well. We met lots of girls going this, through the same thing, thing in Tamil Nadu and India. And around the world today, there's an, the, a very conservative estimate by the International Labour Organization suggests that there's about 21 million people, roughly the population of Australia, in situations of forced labor or modern slavery, being forced to work against their will. And if you look at where the majority of those people are, they're in our region, sort of South Asia and Southeastern Asia, 11.7 million there. Two-thirds of the world's population stuck in forced labor are working in situations of economic exploitation. That means they're working to produce goods and provide services that other people enjoy 
and that their masters or their owners get to profiteer off. Purely motivated by greed, these people are forced to work in supply chains of companies that sadly we are often the beneficiaries of. The fabrics that Christina Jessica was sewing wind up going into make clothes that go around the world, including into Australia. It's a huge problem and it just seems to be growing with globalization. But I don't think it's a new problem. I think it's just a new face to an age-old problem, right? The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, verse 8, reminds us, when you see the powerful exploiting the poor and justice miscarried in the land, do not be surprised by such things. The use of power to abuse and exploit others is a problem as old as time. There's a clear instance in the Bible that I think it really brings this into sharp focus. It's actually one of the most critical moments in all of Israel's history. It's central to the way we understand and read who God's people were. But it's also a moment that we gloss over. And we just had the Bible reading about it from 1 Samuel chapter 8. But before I pick that back up again, a bit of history and a bit of context to that reading... You'll remember the way that Israel left Egypt. Israel was in slavery in Egypt, right? And they were being oppressed by the pharaohs and they cried out to the Lord. And God dramatically intervenes in their story and says, the cries of your people have reached out to me and I have heard them. And so with a mighty hand and a pillar of fire... He leads them out of Egypt and tells them that if you follow my commands, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your king, your protector. And he laid out a set of rules that if they followed those rules, there would be harmony amongst them and amongst the nations around them. They would have a relationship with God that was secure, they would have relationships with another, one another, and that no person in their land would ever go without. There would be no poor and needy if they followed his commands. Each person would be able to partake in the goodness and abundance of creation. No exploitation, no poverty. The world as God intended it to be never actually works out that way because they never quite follow his commands. But if they did, imagine the world that was possible. It's why when we get to that passage in Samuel that it should be so striking to us to listen to what the people said. So let me just pull it open and give it a quick refresher. So it's at the end of Samuel's life. So God's rule was largely mediated through the prophets, the judges and the priests. And Samuel was one of those prophets that would be the spokesperson for God. He was the way his kingship reached out to the people. And at the end of his life, the Israelites come to him, the elders of the nation, they say, Samuel, give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. 
What's wrong with that? Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. No, Israel, you're not like all the other nations. You were never called to be like all the other nations. God is your king. You were different. You don't need a human king. But they insist on it. And Samuel feels really disturbed and he prays to God and God says, it's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. It's me. And tell them. Tell them what their king over them will do. He'll take your sons and make them. Uh, he'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and others still to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief. What will the king that reign over you will do? What will he do? Take your sons and your daughters and use them to build his own power and prestige and glory, to be his perfumers for your daughters and for your sons. He'll make them work in his army to build and run in front of his chariots so he can expand his empire. What will your king do? He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards for himself and his inner circle so that they can be enriched. And you yourselves will feel like slaves under this king. And Israel say, we don't care. We want a human king to lead us. God knows that when you concentrate that much power on a sinful human being, they'll exploit it. And of course, that's what, exactly what we see. I don't think God's talking about any one particular king. It's not just... Saul, the king that they ended up anointing that was the problem, it was king after king after king after king. Even the kings that we hear about and we know to respect, kings like King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he still built his empire on the back of exploiting people. Even King David, we know of that when he was in his position of power, used it in some of the most horrible ways because this is what humans do when they have that much power concentrated on them. And you see this repeated, king after king, neglecting what, the, what God had called them to. There's a king in the book of Jeremiah, King Shalem, that I think exemplifies this and exemplifies the problem of concentrating that much power on anyone that's not God. So this is King Shalem. And this is what God has to say about King Shalem. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it and panels it with cedar and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? So what does King Shalem do? Same thing that all the other kings have done. Builds his palace, panels it with the most elaborate woods, 
to make it look beautiful and builds his own prestige and underpays his workers, exploits people to get it done. He doesn't care for the people. But the remarkable thing about Shalem's story is not Shalem himself, but his father and the way he behaved as king. His father was King Josiah, and listen to how the passage goes on to talk about King Josiah. Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, and all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is this, listen to these words, is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. This is a big statement. He did what was right and just. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And here is God saying, this is what it is to know who I am. To be in relationship with me is to be someone that pursues righteousness and justice. is to be someone that defends the cause of the poor and needy. This is not an issue that we can ever separate out as a peripheral issue to our faith, something that takes a backseat to evangelism or mercy or being kind to others. Pursuing righteousness and justice, defending the cause of the poor and needy, has to be central to who we are as Christians if we are to know God. King Josiah managed to get it right. There was another king that got it right, got it more right than any other being to have ever existed, that knew God better than anyone else ever had. Our Lord and Saviour and King, King Jesus. Think about the way that Paul talks about King Jesus. Though he was one with God, equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto and wielded. Instead, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. How did Jesus use his godlike power to humble himself, to serve others, even humble himself to death? You can see that really clearly when you read through the Gospels. The disciples that followed him around, that revered him as, a, as their rabbi, and then later as their Messiah and King and Lord, he stooped to wash their feet. The outcasts of society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes and the lepers, the lepers who no one would even go near to and touch, he spent time with and touched and healed their wounds for the prostitutes that were cast out for being sinners, he brought them into community. Jesus served and stood up for the cause of the needy. And of course, most dramatically at all, he gave his life to save us, to save the world. That's what it is to know the Lord. That's what it is to defend the cause of the poor and needy. 
There's this great book written by Scott Higgins um, called The End of Greed, and in it he's got this killer line that hits me in the guts every time I read it. He says, for us to resolve the problem of poverty, we must confront the misuse of power. And the kicker comes at the end, including within ourselves. For us to resolve the problems of poverty, we must address the misuse of power, including in ourselves. I've been thinking a lot about Christina Jessica's story, the story we told at the beginning. Christina Jessica, who was responsible for her abuse and neglect? Why was she stuck in such a horrible situation? Let's think about that together for a moment. The labor broker that recruited her absolutely intentionally took advantage of her vulnerability. What about her factory managers? The people that refused to pay her a fair wage, abused her and demanded sexual services from her. Absolutely they're guilty. What about if we go beyond that? The government for her region, surely they should have been enforcing laws. They have laws to ensure that no child should be working at the age of 12. They have minimum wage laws that said that anybody that is working should be paid at least 260 rupees a day, about seven times what she was actually earning. So the government too, they, they're not doing their bit. But what if we take a step back again? What about the companies that wind up purchasing the fabrics that she was making? Are they responsible? If they're responsible, what about the people that wind up buying the clothes that people like Christina, Jessica make? Are we responsible? I feel like when we understand the way that God wants us to use power, we acknowledge that wherever we have influence, we have a responsibility to use it well. And that means that we should be standing up for people like Christina, Jessica. If I go to the next slide. Next one, actually, after that. When we went to um, Tamil Nadu, we brought the head purchasing manager of Wes Farmers with us. So Wes Farmers runs Target, Coles, and Kmart. So this was the guy that was responsible for making sure that their supply chain was checked and kept clean. He met Christina Jessica as well. Turns out that he had a daughter of the same age with the same name, Jessica. And for him, it had this huge impact. It's like I've been in this business for 25 years and I never realized it was this bad. He went back to one of the biggest companies in Australia and said, we need to do something about this. So Kmart, Coles and Target are now saying, we have a responsibility how do we start making sure that we're using mills that don't exploit young girls, but rather give people decent opportunities and decent jobs? I'm amazed. When you look up on, at this screen, we've been campaigning those companies through our Behind the Barcode report um, and many other companies with our Behind the Barcode report and through directly campaigning them. In fact, I'm pretty sure many people at Erin signed postcards to the Just Group to tell them to stop using slavery. A couple of people remember doing that? Campaigning the Just Group for years. 
they just didn't respond. It's like they wanted to say to us they don't care. So the Just group have just uh, JJ's, Just Jeans, Portman's, Dottie, Peter Alexander, which is really popular. Um, and they just said they, they don't care about the, like, like the message they were sending was that they didn't care. But eventually the campaigning pressure got so great, the media pressure got so intense, that their head, the director of corporate affairs calls me up and says, we have to meet. And I don't like that we have to meet, but we have to meet because your people won't stop talking to us. From my perspective, I was like, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad that we're meeting. Let's have a discussion to work out how you can protect workers. And we sat down, and all of a sudden she said, OK, we feel pressured into this, but we'll start telling you more about what we're doing, and we'll start taking additional steps. They're by far not one of the best companies yet, but they're starting to finally recognize that they have a responsibility to use their power to protect the poor. And they're moving in that direction. You can pick almost any company on there, and the campaigning that we've been doing together has led to a huge difference. I'll just pick Cotton On. Cotton On is probably the big, it, in fact, it is the biggest fashion company in Australia at the moment. Years ago, we ran a postcard campaign to them, calling for them to do the same thing, tackling slavery in their supply chain. It was a long road to try to get them to engage. Nowadays, I had a meeting with them, would have been about four weeks ago now. CFO, so the chief financial officer, the chief executive officer are in the room and saying, we are directing the way we organize our supply chains based on what you're telling us to do. So when I say we need to go, you need to go look at the mills to make sure that there's no young girls being forced to work in it, that's exactly what they're trying to do this year. That is amazing. Cotton On, one of the biggest companies in Australia, $2 billion in revenue every year saying, because of people like you guys writing to us, talking to us, trying to purchase ethically, we're going to change our systems to ensure that girls are protected. It's a reminder that we have phenomenal power because we are connected to girls like Christina, Jessica. And that when we use it well, the way that God calls us to, we can make a huge difference. If I can go back one slide. So, this is, uh, this is Christina, Jessica right here. Um, and standing around her, so there's me in the back, the giant that's totally out of proportion to everyone else. Um, there's Nithia and Mary Flora. Um, they are women that had all worked in spinning mills. Some of them were still working in spinning mills. And what they had done with the backing of a Christian partner is get together and say, let's form the first female trade union in this region. It's amazing. So Christina and Jessica found out about this and hopped on board. These women decided to use their power well as well. They started to get women that had been working in the mills, women that were still working in the mills, and bringing them together and start demanding better conditions. They organized a march in India of 3,000 women. Now, India is a country that's not used to listening to its women. But when there are 3,000 of them together walking through the fabric district, they get heard. 
they, through their march, got factory owners and government officials to put pressure on their companies to get rid of, uh, to get rid of child labour and forced labour. In 40% of the factories where they marched, they no longer use labour brokers to bring in young girls to work in those factories. That's remarkable. The union found out about another factory that had about 74 kids in it. They went to the factory together and they demanded that the kids be repatriated, taken to school and given education. It's amazing that the power that they have when they stood together. And we can stand with them, right? We can stand with them by calling on companies to do the right thing. And it's amazing the power that we have. I think the world is a long way from truly knowing God to doing what is right and just and to defending, and defending the cause of the poor and needy. But that's why I love coming to churches like this one, where we're willing to take action to call our government to do more for the poor. Where we're willing to talk about the exploitation that happens in the world and say we can do better. We can stand with Christina, Jessica, with Mary, Flora, and Nithya, and call for a better world to come. I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come up and play for us. But I hope that each of you take on that call to truly know the Lord, to be people that defend the calls of the poor and needy, and to stand with girls like Christina. Father God, we just give you thanks, Lord, for the way that you have loved us, the way that you love all your people, Lord. Lord, we know that when power, and when we have power, we often misuse it, but we call you, Lord, to work in our hearts, for your spirit to work in us, to be the people you have called us to be to be people of righteousness and justice, that use the immense power that you have given us to defend the cause of the poor and needy. May we be people with hearts after you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Catalyst team and Gershon for... Um